Here we are. This is our first side quest in a bit. It's Men of Lumeral Fiber coming at you. I'm Jason Helms, uh, joined by my co-hosts, Corrigan Vaughn. <laughs> that felt painful. I don't know what happened there, but... So, uh, she showed up again. You need to know how many surnames left through my head. <laughs> Only one or two of them were yours. <laughs> Was it Johnson? Wow, and I have a lot of them, so I can only imagine um, what other things. Steve. Yeah. Uh, Edmondson. Yay. Yep. No, that's one. Yep, yes. That's one of them, too. Oh, boy. I'll figure another one out. Oh, I get thought it. you were saying. I it. love get that it. that See sounded like. See yeah, I, I heard yeah. it. That was good. See? Um, all right. Cool. So, uh, joined by my friend, Corey. Uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and, uh, of course, my brother, Ben. Say hi, Ben. Hey, I'm here too. So we are talking today about uh, Double Fine Adventure, a 20-part docu-series uh, that is all available on YouTube. Although every episode will ask you, beg you, to go buy the Blu-ray where you will get all 20 episodes um, that you can also just watch on YouTube. And it, honestly, if I had the Blu-ray, I would probably still watch them on YouTube because I can do that without getting up from my couch. It's so much easier. Oh, I love not getting up from my couch. It's so my good. favorite. We spent like five minutes looking for Ice Age today on Disney Plus and trying to find where to stream it just because we didn't want to get up and put it in the DVD. It's not it's, on Disney Plus. It is yeah. on Disney Plus, but not in the kid view because it's PG for mild peril. Ooh, Wait, Ice Age peril. is a Disney movie? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know the answer to that question because only Ice Age is on there, none of the sequels. Ice Age is not a Disney movie. I agree with you, and yet we watched it on Disney Plus. I don't feel like this is like a thing where there's opinions. I think it either is or isn't a Disney movie. Oh, it was made by Fox, so it's owned by Disney. Oh, well, there you go. Figured it out. It's also owned by Jason, but he didn't want to get up. Yeah, it is. So it's a 20-part docu-series uh, in which two-player productions, a documentary team, follow around all of the employees of Double Fine, uh, the video game company, as they made Broken Age, a uh, wonderful video game that we talked about last episode. We documented it in our ah. previous episode. So... Um, Long and short of it, and then we'll dig in. When Broken Age was launched, it was launched as a Kickstarter, and part of the Kickstarter was the promise that they would hire a documentary crew, if they made their goal, to film the entire process. And then the docuseries is the entire story of it. They did not initially think it would be 20 parts, but they didn't initially think they were going to get that much money. So we'll talk about how that happened uh, as we go through it. It also is 20 parts plus probably 30 to 40 like small episodes, whether it's like a feature on a specific staff member or it'll just be like a behind the scenes that day or it'll be like a little playthrough like there's maybe hundreds i don't even know how many other additional double fine two-player production mini episodes there are within those two and a half years three years that this documentary takes place yeah it's pretty expansive those weren't in the homework right because i didn't watch those I, I watched like a dozen of them i know you did you're amazing yeah. and your brand is strong ben i got my own little hexapel oh there's the hexapel look at uh, that listeners computer genius. what what you are not looking at is adorable and it's funny because if you listened to our episode about this game you know how much ben actually hates hexapels they're the worst so there's a certain degree of um i don't know incong incongruity to the fact that you purchased it but it is very cute well, what's the relationship like there, Ben? Because it's adorable. Um, but is there, like, some anger from you? Or is it more like, this thing is so cruel, it will destroy people, it will protect me? I would say that mm. I, as soon as I looked at the backside of the Hexapal and realized that there were no wires to connect, mm. 
Mm-hmm. I was overjoyed, and all of my um, displeasement, displeasureness, <coughs> had left. You're you're a beautifully simple person. Thank you. I'm so glad you're happy together. Thank you. Uh, all right, so we're not going to just like go through the entire docu series. Uh, that would take way too long. Uh, instead, it's we're going to just kind of give the overall timeline, jump into our reactions, some things we noticed, and then uh, pause fuera. Right, we will <laughs> eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's go through the timeline. Um, starts in February 2012. They launch a Kickstarter for it. And the way the docuseries kind of follows this, because uh, they were filming even then, it really seems like just a momentary idea. Yeah. That's what really struck me. It's like, this was not well planned. This was, I mean, sure, there was planning into it, but it was like, you guys want to do it? You want to try this? Let's do it. Did you see the original Kickstarter video? It's so janky. I love it's it. It's so funny. I thought it was it's hilarious. So it's really well done. I didn't actually watch it, I don't think. It's it's not in the documentary. They reference it a couple times. They play a couple clips, but I watched yeah, the whole thing yeah, before. Yeah, I saw a couple clips. And it's it's hilarious, but it definitely was not something. I mean, they were shooting for 400000 total. That's 100000 for the doc, 300000 for the game, which would be a really, really small game with a really small team, and they were expecting it to be done in October. So that's yeah. from February to October, eight months or whatever that is. I mean, that's crazy for how long the game ended up being. And it's, in, I mean, that's a tenth of what they ended up getting overall. Actually, they got a lot more than that for for part for Act 2, which we'll get to eventually. But yeah, it definitely was a lot jankier than than a 20-part you know, docuseries would, would let you to think. Yeah, and it definitely has that feel when this documentary begins of it being so, it's it's a concept. It's literally just feels kind of like if you took a log line from someone's like, you know, journal that they woke up in the middle of the night, we're like, I had this idea yeah, and I wrote it down. Let's make something. That's, uh, yes, yeah. And it's, I mean, that's one of the cool things about the entire journey of this documentary is that you get to see it at that small level that the beginning of this is really, it's just this tiny little idea. And then to watch that, blossom into something through all the crazy shit that is part of that journey. But at the same time to think that this little kernel that honestly through half of this thing, I was like, I've played this game and I still don't feel like they're going to be able to make this. Yeah. Yeah. Like we are just like, they can't, they can't possibly to watch it go through that journey is, you know, I think it's, there's something actually kind of weirdly inspiring about for sure this entire process as stressful and ridiculous as it is. Especially, I mean, compared to reading like the Wikipedia page or like an article about when it came out or whatever, that's like, Oh, here are the dates. It was tough to get it done on time. They didn't get it done on time and they eventually released it. Like that doesn't give you any sort of like emotional connection that like knowing what Greg Rice does on Friday nights when he's stressed or whatever it might be that you're like learning all about like the intern, the German intern that works there for three months. (laughs) that Like Maya totally like re-inspires the whole company basically, or the whole team. And then goes back home for love. And then keeps working on the game. (laughs) Like it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's just all of that, that personal interest, like reality Mm -hmm. TV type stuff totally sucked me in. Yeah. It makes me wish that we had access to this kind of stuff for everything that we play because Honestly, I have no idea. I know I've watched enough documentaries and worked on enough film sets and things like that to know, like, what is it like to make a movie or something like that? But I've never seen this kind of thing before. And so it really was kind of a journey that I'd 
never seen. And it was obviously so much different with a place like Double Fine than it would be if you were like, like making Animal Crossing is going to be a whole other bird, you know, like it's nothing like this. But for an independent studio like this coming across all this money that they were not expecting to have and then coming from this inkling of an idea to what they end up with is really i don't know it's it's magical and it's frustrating and yeah there's a lot here there's a lot in this documentary you said the thing about i wish we had this for more of the uh games that we played i wanted to mention alternative and then then we can go back to you and maybe come back to my alternative but we do have a lot of this for thimbleweed park and i think it's Mm. really really good one to compare it to yeah we'll come back to in a second but ben finish what you were thinking yeah i was gonna say especially because that came out right after this documentary aired in 2015 they started working on thimbleweed park run run gilly left and did that so thimbleweed park came after this yes yeah different company too but gilbert when he left double fine midway through he left to go do thimbleweed You know, the thing is that with the way that we play these things, and because obviously I have not been playing these as long as yous have, I'm not totally sure of the chronology of it. So I've played Thimbleweed Park. I have it on my phone. I just had no idea what order that came in. So Thimbleweed Park also has a documentary like this? Kind of. Kind of. Okay. So Go for it, Jay. Yeah, Thimbleweed Park... So Ron, you see in the first few episodes, and then he leaves. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a big dramatic leave. And then he goes and does Thimbleweed Park. Okay. Um, And... Thimbleweed Park opens its Kickstarter in 2014, so after Act 1 has come out okay. of uh, Broken Age. Gotcha. Uh, but there's already been a bunch of work, a bunch of character design, right? We, we've got some ideas. We know the the basic layout and where things are going. Um, they get considerably less. They ended up getting uh, 626000 just mm. over one of their stretch goals, which was six twenty five, to get it onto iOS and Android, which is why, Corey, you have it on your phone. Um, <laughs> but... During that process, and I believe from the best I could tell before the Kickstarter closed, uh, they started doing a podcast. And they would do just a weekly podcast. It was like five, ten minutes. And it was just Dave and Ron and Gary Winnick. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Thank you. So it was just them three every week, I think. Yeah. And sometimes it, they did other like specials, like focus on uh, character design and things like that, and moved with different people. But mainly it was really small. Uh, so I think some things that that change that changes are one that was not from what I could tell part of the initial Kickstarter. It wasn't like we are promising you this thing. It's just kind of a thing they decided along the way that they were like, this would be a good way to keep people in the know. It's two. It wasn't about transparency. The original Kickstarter for broken age goes on and on about transparency about, Hey, if we make this thing, it's either going to be a good game or a bad game. Either way, that's going to be great TV. Right. And you're going to get to see it. Yeah. And it's like, I would love to talk about how much we think that they kept to that. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll wait. That That's to save. Sure. Um, this is one where they never claim that at all. And they're just going, to, we're going to spin it, right? We're going to tell you what we did this week and what we hope to do next week as part of our, like, just our weekly check-in. It was like their, their stand-up. So, yeah, it's their stand-up meeting. It's like, that's what Double Fine calls their weekly team meeting or whatever, yeah. Or maybe their daily team meeting. And so they re- they just going to record it and put it up there. Uh, and I'm sure that after they you know, press stop on the recording. They can talk about anything that's going wrong. Uh, they can, you know, get into other stuff if they want. Yeah. It does, doesn't have to be about that kind of transparency. Uh, one of the good things about that is they can never betray anybody yeah. in terms of it wasn't transparent enough. You right. Know, you told us this and, it, and this happened instead. So this is one of many differences where I think Ron and that team were able to see what happened with Broken Age and change what they were doing, not mm. overpromise certain things, but really kind of keep it low uh, I remember when I saw this Kickstarter thinking like, oh, is this even going to be a game? Like, it looks really cool, but like, 
it kind of feels like it's not going to happen. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Which is a, probably a good way to approach Kickstarter in general. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Really lowering those promises. Um, yeah. And let's be honest, Ron Gilbert's name is not as big as Tim Schafer's. Yeah. Which is crazy. And I, I agree. Uh, I, I love, listen, I love Tim's games too, but man, I love me some Ron Gilbert games. Yeah. I wonder what Elijah Wood has to say about Ron Gilbert. I, I'm sure he loves him too. Yeah. Uh, Elijah? Yeah. Oh, wait, he's, he's, he hasn't come on the podcast yet. He's Maybe busy, hey. listen, he's busy selling turnips on somebody's island in Animal Crossing right now, so we couldn't get him today. No. We couldn't get him. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk through the timeline and start to talk uh, about Broken Age. Yeah. So February 2012, uh, the Kickstarter is launched. Tim is scared of launching it and excited. And he presses launch. And they initially are hoping for 100,000 for the dock, 300,000 for the game. So 400,000 total. They got some stretch goals in there. And they got, Ben, how much did they get? I think within the first 24 hours, they got over a million dollars. Yeah. And total of 3.4 million. Yeah. That's uh, over the life of the Kickstarter. That's yeah. bonkers. They then ended up, according to the documentary, they didn't get into the actual budget, but roughly doubling what they would do for that. So doing, I'm going to guess, around a $7 million budget for the overall life of the game. Yeah, because they ended up getting a lot more like pre-orders after that and then additional funding. Then they get some like licensing deals from Korea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, yeah. You know what it was, what they ended up getting? Like, there was just like random deals they wanted to get to get to basically not have to fire people, which they ended up having yeah. to do at one point right. also. Yes, but not off of Broken Age. No, that's true. Yeah, just just double fine as a as a whole. Yeah, but I, I thought going back to what we started talking about earlier, which was I think one of the most surprising things to me was after the Kickstarter closed, there's a little interview with Tim Schafer who's like, "Well, I guess it's time to make a game." Yeah. Yep. And he goes into the fact that like it's like a lot of people think that we have a game idea. We don't have any ideas. It's now my job to go away and write in this binder. Yeah. Just like as many ideas as I can think of, take it to the team. We'll find one that we like. And then I'll just like start writing the script, yep. which he ended up writing for two and a half years. And I think for anyone who, anyone who does creative stuff like that, like writing, I mean, and I know both of you do that kind of thing as well. And I know I do a lot of writing that entire concept, like blew my mind of just being like, all right, it exists now. Let's do this. And, you know, by the end of it, he's locking himself away trying to, you know, yeah, like get those final day. things on. But I'm just thinking, like, it's so hard to force any form of creativity. And it made me appreciate the game even more just to see the way that he was able to sort of push this stuff out. And, you know, as I said, and when we podcasted about this, you know, I thought this was a fun game and a clever game and cute. And I love the script and the dialogue and everything to this and the arc of it as much as I might've been frustrated with the puzzles themselves. I loved the overarching themes of this whole game and just to watch him go from like, okay, let's make a game to just turning this stuff out yeah. was incredible to me. I think it could be seen as, Lazy is not the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, I irres mean, irresponsible, maybe it is. It's like, irresponsible, but yeah. it's also that's such the creative mind, though, right? Like when you're just in that place where you have to have your feet to the fire, you know, where and some of my best work has been written like that has been like, you know, I got into grad school off a of paper that I wrote in like 16 hours right before it was due. Nice. And then that was like my sample to get it. PhD like that's that's the kind of thing that sometimes this stuff needs and so I don't know it's kind of validating when you see yeah. it that way I'd say it, in a kind of a weird way it's actually very responsible if we go Ooh. back to the original meaning of responsible meaning someone who is able to respond or therefore obligated to respond so responsibility 
originally applied to like the sheriff, the king, the mayor, whoever was in charge. Uh, and then only later came to this idea of individual responsibility or somebody who had caused something. Um, yeah, I'm writing about this in the book. Anyway, I was going to say that you 100% know this for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah. This is fresh. You know I'm, it. I'm going to stick with uh, Mike Herrera's definition, which is responsibility. responsibility. What's, What's that? that? So <laughs> Responsibility. Not quite yet. <laughs> yeah. So both valid definitions. Uh, Jason, would you like to continue? So the reason it's responsible is he's putting himself in a position to respond. Right. He's putting himself in a place where he has to do this. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, it's it's in a sense the most responsible. I get uh, it. I'm wrong. Jeez, dude. This also feels like how Tim Schaefer would explain it. Like, actually, actually, this is the most. Neil, thanks, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Jeez. Actually, Ben, the game was supposed to come out in October 2012. <laughs> But with this sweet 3.4 mil burning a hole in their pocket, mm. they're like, let's make a bigger game. Let's hire some people. Let's do this. Let's get Peter Chan on the case. Boom. Peter Chan. They bring in Peter Chan. Wow. He's so good. Peter McConnell did not sound cheap. No. Every time you see him, he's with, I guess, when they did a little side documentary, he's like in his little studio. But when he's actually doing work on the game, he's in, he's like composing or writing for a composer who has or this like giant Mount orchestra Tam. or hiking Mount Tam. <laughs> or talking to people in Australia for the Sydney Opera House Orchestra. That seemed like a very expensive part of the game. Was this not the most Marin game oh, studio ever? I know it's 100%. in San Francisco, but everybody lived in Marin. Yeah, yeah. no, it is. It's the best. Very Marin. I agree, guys. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to uh, July 2013, where the decision is made to split the game into two acts. And oh. we need to be clear that men of low moral fiber will not stand for such a decision wow. of low moral wow. fiber. No, I uh, uh, it, it seems like it made sense to me. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it made perfect sense. Why would anyone care? Why would anyone write articles, multiple articles with the title Broken Age, Broken Promises? I love that title, though. Can we just? It's a good title. <laughs> it's solid. This is like this is a pet peeve of mine. It's like when you go on Twitter and everyone is making the same joke about a thing. Yeah. It's like just like search it first and see if okay, three thousand people. I didn't people... know AOC said it like three <laughs> hours before I did. If I had, I would have just retweeted her. I'm sorry, I can't search yeah. everything before I tweet a um, hilarious joke. I just live subtweeted you yeah. right now. Both of you. I get it. I'm an idiot. Ooh, I need to follow that. And I don't have a PhD. No, and but... I'll always be ABD. <laughs> Jeez. Tonight on Ben's Insecurity. No. <laughs> no, but like, I just, I hate when articles all come out with the same like wannabe clever headline. Did you watch John Oliver this past week? Yeah. Uh, the end of his is just everyone, all these news anchors asking like the weather person, are you wearing pants? And it's just like, yeah, <sighs> yeah. it's the, it's the easiest one. It's the easy. Right? Yeah. Make it more difficult. I don't know. Think harder. Yeah. That whole thing, you know, it's so tricky what they went through with deciding to break it into two. Yeah. And again, one of the things that I like about this is getting to see the process of that, because you can see that they would rather not. And they know that there's a degree of cynicism in deciding to do this, that they are doing this for a 
bottom line in a sense. But it's also about people who work there. They're trying not to lay people off, which inevitably does happen. But, like, they're trying to figure out, like, how do we make this game? We do not have enough money to make the game that we promised people. But we have made an incredible first whatever. So we can either put this out and make this, you know, the best first half and then give them a great second half. Or we can rush some bullshit to them. And from the perspective of someone who like thinks this game came out really great and is watching the journey and thus getting behind the scenes, like who these people are and how they're trying to do this and how much they're putting into it. Like they love it. They don't want to give you a crappy product, but also from the perspective of someone for one that, like I said, my husband backed this Kickstarter and who has backed many Kickstarters that were shit at the end of the day, like probably 90% of the Kickstarters that we've backed have completely tanked and been something that was a terrible product or the product never came through. One of those two things, the vast majority of them. So I also get people's um, pushback of being like, you didn't give us what we promised, what we were promised here. And so it's like, I get it. But also I'm like, why wouldn't you, they're giving you something and they're saying you're going to get this. Why wouldn't you want the best version of this that you've spent your money on and you invested all of this time into i don't remember keo ever being like oh this is this is bullshit i'm never gonna get yeah. the thing that I, i'm sorry i, I keep saying shit so that you're gonna have to a lot edit of this so much and stuff. And <laughs> so yeah, many yeah. ducks so many ducks uh, but yeah all the, like that's just what i think of with all of this stuff though is it's like it's a complicated dynamic between this transparent process that they're making and the issues of being an investor yeah and an investor who's not a professional investor but just someone at home who's like i just want to play a game man give me my game and i think that's probably how it was for most people yeah. that were like i guess we get the first half it kind of sucks we don't get the whole thing but mm-hmm. They don't have to pay anymore, at least. Right, like, yeah. Like they'll you, get it to me when they get it to me. Hopefully they finish it. Like Exactly. I've already waited two years for this thing. Like, it'd be nice to just get it. Uh, and I, I feel like it's one of those, like, Yelp review type things where the, mm. the loudest voices are just the ones who are upset. And I'm not going to tweet, like, I'm okay with this. this is fine right yeah it's interesting what uh, Tim says in the last episode about, um, you know, the moment that this happened. And he, he talks about like, you know, it's like we gave a bunch of people these uh, bludgeons and sharp objects and things and then said, hey, go to town, do whatever you want to do. And then they just like beat the shit out of us. And we were like, well, I guess that's one thing you could do. with it. <laughs> and right. I think it's somewhat a fundamental misunderstanding of the idea that like the same thing that allows people who do Kickstarter to fund you also allows them to speak. Right. And yeah. I'm not saying like, yeah, and they were right or and that was right. you know defensible what they are saying. But it's like that's that's the mechanism. That's it right. cuts both ways. Yeah. Um, the, in other words, he he said it as though like it was this one moment in history where this could happen. And it's like <laughs> yes, but it was also the one moment in history where you could get funded this way. Yeah. And that's not a coincidence. And you know that really comes to a head in this documentary when a couple of outlets, and I think it's one specifically that starts it, and then others sort of get on it. But a couple of games journalism outlets decide that they're going to break the review embargo because they are backers. And so this blurs this line right here where, you know, if you follow any form of like criticism, like movies, games, whatever, you know that these embargoes are fairly common. 
that it's, you know, you get everyone's review of a thing on the same day. And it kind of gives a movie or a game or whatever some time to kind of build its own word of mouth and things like that before critics destroy it or, or rave about it, whatever the case may be. Ideally, the hype is built up the day it comes out, right? Exactly. So that, you know, you have this kind of measured response to it and it shouldn't tank something yeah. in and of itself when these reviews, if people start trickling them out right away. And so they're kind of depending on this review embargo here so that people will get the game at around the same time that these reviews come out. And instead, these people are like, I paid for this. So I feel like it's my right to talk about the thing that I invested in. And that really is kind of a unique issue that they're dealing with, because that's not in any other sort of journalistic endeavor like this, like you can't be a movie reviewer and invest in Paramount or whatever. And then like, just be like, and this is how I review movies. Right. Like, but also like what if every (laughs) blogger got to see whatever Marvel movie two weeks before actual like New York times or like LA time, like movie reviewers, like that do it for a living. That's kind Mm -hmm. of what happened is that like Kotaku and Gama Sutra, they probably did have this game early, but like they, they weren't backers, but they, they agreed to the embargo. They're the professionals that have been in the business. They're journalists. And you have random blog boys just being like, uh, this game was okay. I wish I could have had it and all the whole thing. And I, <laughs> they took my money or whatever, Exactly. Even, whether it's good or bad, they're breaking the embargo. And those bigger outlets then being like, well, if they're going to review this, we're going to look like chumps if totally. we don't put something out and then forcing their hand, which is just, it's a really unique situation that they do end up with in this that it's like oh this isn't oh this isn't normally how it works where there's this blurry line between investors and reviewers and publications and all of that in this that makes it so much more difficult than they expected they hadn't anticipated that element of this and you can see tim just really just like what yeah ate him up like, like, why like, are people is, so mean? Why are people? Yeah, jerks? like his response is just like, "Well, tell him like he's being a douchebag or something yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that," you know. Uh, but yeah, it's tricky. Tough to see Tim Schaefer in boss mode because I think for most of my life he's just been like Tim Schaefer, ultra creative guy who thinks of cool things for me to click on. <laughs> and now when he's like trying to ma- manage. Timelines is the biggest one, but you have like his team of people and you have interpersonal dynamics where he's like calling people out in public settings in like weird, awkward ways where like his underlings are like half of them are laughing, half of them are cringing. And then you have budget stuff and him just like constantly being behind his timeline and right. He's getting his scripts in for things, not being able to pick cast and just like, it's tough seeing all of that. I didn't have as negative as a response to Tim Schafer as you did watching this and maybe that's also that I have not worked for a startup, so I don't have any uh, like PTSD from that kind There's of stuff. There's a lot of baggage there. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I do think that this speaks to um, what I can say is I did go to a Christian university um, and this weird blurred line between like, oh, we're all buddies and everything's great. And like, but this is a business and there is so much in this documentary where I was sitting there going like, you can't, you can't act like this with people, not yeah. just Tim Schafer, but everyone in this where like, not everyone, but a good chunk of people in this where I was like, you just like the lines need to be firmer. And I know you've all known each other for 20 years 
and you know you have this strong bond but also this is a workplace and so much of these issues could be avoided if you acted like you were at work yeah you can't peer pressure your employees into going to the after party bar crawl after you've already gotten them drunk right yeah (laughs) like uh that was probably the most uncomfortable of all of these things yeah. was anything involving reds. Yeah, everything with reds, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was January 2014, and then uh, April 2015, Act 2 is released. Uh, the game does fairly well. Yeah. I, I tried to look into numbers, Lifetime, uh, and I got it at, I think, around 600,000 copies sold. Um, and that's just via, that's, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was four, it was just under 500,000 via Steam. And tough to know past that, but I'm guessing um, it's under a million and probably well over 500,000. Wow. So did did very well. And like all Schaefer games, this is probably one of those ones that sells for a while. Yeah. Uh, so likely they made their money back and they're, they're able to ride high and maybe weather some of those uh, rough cancellations and things in the future. Yeah, it's nice to see that uh, Psychonauts 2 slated to come out in 2018. It came out two years ago, which is great. Yeah. We played yeah, it yeah. and it was a great episode on it. And they're definitely not still in production on it. They got the money, so now they can actually, you know, spend more time on it, Ben, because this is selling so well. Yeah. And maybe they'll avoid crunch. Hey, speaking of crunch, um, nice. okay, let's talk about what crunch is because crunch is inter- inevitable in any startup, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> it's a term mentioned um, only once or twice during the docu series. Uh, in fact, people go to great lengths to avoid the term. Yeah. Because crunch, even though it sounds like slang, is actually industry jargon that has a very, very specific meaning. It means working more than 40 hours a week for more than two weeks on end. And it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Corey's eyes bulged a little bit. Cool. Um, <laughs> Took a big the, gulp. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, mm. <laughs> the um, IDGA, I'm thinking that. I think I got that uh, acronym right. It might be IIGDA. I, I always screw it up. But uh, Game Designers Association, international thing. Anyway, uh, they put together a survey every year, and it looks like things are getting better with it. But generally, you're looking at most companies mandating crunch. Uh, typical crunch lengths are three to six months. And typical amount of time per week working is 60 to 80 hours. And 80 to 100 is in the like 15% of employees are asked to do this if you're in a team that's crunching. So when you say however many employers mandate crunch, I think it's it's impossible to say a number there. Yes. I think you could say 100% um, because I did crunch or whatever for many months, a bunch of different um, sprints and stuff like that. And I think not just in startups, people experience the like, I don't know what other jobs experience this. And in, in a lot of art and film stuff, there's like, oh, the, the client needs this by Friday. We need to get it done. It doesn't matter if you worked eight hours that day. You can't go home. I mean, you can. You legally should go home, right? I guess that's you're done. Right. You're done getting paid. You or have whatever the right for the to go home. But... You have the right to go home, but then you have to see those people that stay there literally all night working on it, doing your job for you the next day and the next day and the next day, the next year, whatever. Who you're working with on teams, and you need to earn the trust of to have a working relationship with. So it, it's it's tough to say it's it's not inevitable when it is so pervasive in every part of, I guess, the tech world. I don't even know what types of jobs have this and what don't, but anything where you're working with clients and have deadlines, you're going to have a crunch. I mean, unless you set realistic deadlines, but, you know. But even then, you're going to get surprises and clients are always oh, going to sure. want more yeah, than they can course. afford. <laughs> well, right. Real- but again, is that inevitable? Or- a really, realistic <laughs> deadlines is just a myth. 
Yeah. And, and so, I mean, yeah. obviously, like I grew up in a household in which my stepfather was making games yeah. and this was very right. much a reality of yeah. our lives was, you know, this was this was pretty regular. Yeah. It's like three months of stress and three months and then like two weeks of like, oh, we did the thing. Right. Yeah. No. one hundred. <laughs> then there'd be like a cool big party and yeah. then it would be right back into. Yeah. All of that all over again. So I only question the inevitability thing because, you know, since we've been on our anti-capitalist kick today, it's like, is it inevitable or? But yes, I don't want to no, say like 100%. it's it's inevitable as a human. I think it's inevitable <laughs> in society right now. Yeah, in the like, way I don't, I don't that know, things work. How do you inevit it? How do you how do you inevitableize it? Uh, let me throw a couple more facts in there just to help our debate. Um, so one, I think you're right to say, like, what do you mean? It's most, it's all, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good chance that these surveys are underestimating it because of a variety of factors. And that word mandate is part of it. And the survey really gets into it and tries to break that down and says, how many of you felt that, uh, the company culture encouraged it? How many of you felt, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, but it was over 50% mandated. That's insane. Someone in charge said, you need to work till this is done. Not, I feel pressure to do it, but someone said, You do it or you're out. Yeah. Right. Wow. Uh, what is yeah. also revealed is that it isn't 100% of companies. There are companies that don't have crunch. There are companies that actually don't allow crunch, mm. that mandate that. Do those companies not make money? <laughs> uh, they, they make money, right? I'd love they to see that it. in action, how how their sprints yeah. work. and. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, there, there's lots of ways. And we can yeah. break into the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the ways to get away from it. Um, the... Uh, I'm struggling to think of good video game companies now because there's a couple good ones that are doing interesting (laughs) things. Uh, The other thing is that it seems to be worse in video games than in other tech companies. Uh, And there's a couple reasons for this. One of them is deadlines. Uh, Video games typically have deadlines around Christmas. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't mean that the, the deadline oh, is going to happen yeah. at Christmas, but deadlines that are leading towards Christmas. So it needs right. to be out in October yeah. so that it can run on sale at Christmas. For sure. Um, so typically crunch is going to run from like July to September. But the fact that those those dates can't move, it's not that it's a holiday, but it's like this needs to be done or right. the yeah. company won't exist because we have to take a full year off. <laughs> um, totally. It is, it is pretty widely accepted. Um, that crunch is actually ineffective. Mm-hmm. So that we also know mm. from a lot, a lot, a lot of business research going back to the 1960s. How so? That when people work more than 40 hours in a week, their productivity goes down, not up. And that 30 is actually probably a better target to hit. Right. Uh, mm. Particularly for extended lengths of time. Um, so th- this is just something we know about the way that people work. And every person thinks that they're different than that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, people are awesome. <laughs> but this is stuff that's like really, really foundational stuff. That yeah. Everyone who went to business school knows and ignores. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have no trouble believing that. That seems completely intuitive. Yeah. Because of money. Yeah. And again, it's because it's the story you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What are the investors going to believe? Do you, do you want to present that to the investors or do you want to tell the investors how hard they work? Right. Uh, the reason, again, that Rockstar got in trouble with this in 2018 uh, was not that they were having their employees crunch, which of course they were, they're a video game company, but the fact that they bragged about it. Right. And yep. why were they bragging about it? To tell their investors slash players how hard their team worked. Uh, so in this, we, we see that you know, crunch is not effective. It's widespread. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that companies do it, but I think uh, one of the biggest reasons that people do it is because they like the work they like the company. They like the product. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. one of the reasons it's more widespread in video games. The Church of Tim Schafer. Yeah. And the research I did on it to present on it was to say, 
when we teach um, digital humanities stuff, uh, I was presented on this at the Modern Language Association. Are we taking part in crunch? Are we making our students do it? Because I am regularly getting reports from students when I teach game design that my students spend more time on my class than on any other class. Right. And it's a 2,000 level class. And these are juniors Did and seniors. Did you say 2,000? Uh, 200, yeah. We, we, oh. could, we do, it's actually, yeah, just different numbering. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> that seemed like it's a, a second year class. It's like, just like a super Saiyan no, or whatever it's that a, thing it's is It's a low, called. it's... It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's over 9,000! Only tenured professors can take the class. Cor Corey, <laughs> it's like, worse. It's a 20,000 level. Oh my God. Because Why? Why would they there's do too many numbers because okay. all Texas universities have to use this the same numbers. This is fucking system. Texas. That's anyway, because uh, it makes transferring wow. easier. So, oh my God. it's a it's a second year course and it it shouldn't be requiring that much. And you know, one way I saw this is I had this these phenomenal nursing students who were taking the class. And it's like they're not going to ever use this, right? They're not going to need to make games. And so I, I spent a lot of time in class saying, you yeah, know, this is not a class about learning to make games. It's a class about learning how rhetoric works, how to make arguments, how to persuade people. And we're using video games to explore some of those. And I overheard two of the students talking in like a week before finals. And one of them is saying, you know, oh, I was just having so much trouble studying for this chemistry exam. And I was just like, my brain was so fried. I was just like, I can't take it anymore. Uh, and so I just went and coded for six hours and it just felt so much better. <laughs> And it's like, if you've oh, done wow. that game yeah. design coding, that's what it feels like. Right. Like, yeah. it's just like, boom, oh, all these little problems that I can solve. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it feels like playing an adventure game. Right. Yeah. It's a really, really persuasive environment to work in. And that's a danger of it. Uh, it's also a really good thing about it. Yeah. Right. It cuts both ways. Yeah. It does two things at once. Uh, so one last thing, which is uh, the concept of the hacker work ethic by, uh, Pekka Himanen, maybe 2006, 2007-ish uh, book that came out. And he's, you know, putting this in uh, contradiction to the uh, Protestant work ethic, where it's like, work as hard as you can, do this, and it's a moral absolute. And the hacker work ethic is all about creativity, and it's all about joy. And it's, uh, sometimes you work for like three or four days straight, because you just get so into a project. And then, you know, you don't work for like two weeks, mm -hmm. and that's fine. And you just work with what the work is there. Right. And I think... What I, I see so much promise in this idea of, you know, if money is not an issue, if we can get outside the world of capitalism, oh, the hacker work ethic sounds amazing. Right. And yet within the world of capitalism, it has just as much potential to be exploited as any other work system. Maybe, you know, maybe it's even enhanced in some ways. Yeah. So anyway, we see we see crunch happening in the, the docuseries and we see them studiously avoiding the term. So, Ben, what was the quote you had? The one you'd highlighted? Because this was yours. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I should remember standing out when I watched it. It was one of the last episodes. And it, it's after people had been fired and there's kind of like low morale and they're doing that last sprint to get the game out. Tim says to camera, when people are staying late, it's just because they want to make sure the game is really good. And that's his version of why people don't want to get fired, basically. Yep. Oh, don't want to get fired. I mean, maybe that's it, but that's not the only stick that he holds yeah. over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. He is their childhood <laughs> hero. Yeah. Right? That's the uh, other a lot stick of them that he holds. say that directly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, can you imagine can you imagine the ability yeah. to disappoint Tim Schaefer? Right. The oh. and it's like it adds to there's already a power dynamic with any boss and employee yeah. situation, but to add that idolization to it is just such a yeah it's a whole other level of that power dynamic 
there's a there's a beautiful shot in the docu series. Um, I think it's in the last episode or second to last, and it's uh, it's uh, maybe even third to last. Anyway, uh, it's Anna Kipnis's chair, and it's, I sent you a screenshot of it. Oh yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Okay, it just says her empty chair. <laughs> it just says after crunching for two months, Anna has become sick. Yep, which has a whole new meaning in 2020, by the way. Mm, just yeah. the idea of like becoming getting yeah. the sickness <laughs> it sounds so ominous it is not yet known when she will be able to return uh. and scene <laughs> like that's yeah. rough yeah. there's no commentary over it at all it's just like oh you know and anna's gone thinking about that like anna's journey also is <sighs> i didn't watch the side things about her i only watched the main 20 episodes or whatever but to watch from, okay, so we started this whole thing from the beginning, right? Where it's like this very, again, blurred lines, no HR, like right. everything is just Everyone's like... Everyone's getting drunk together. Yeah, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's very happy-go-lucky and optimistic and all of this to we reach the end of this where we have her like physically ill. And you can see her in meetings like just spent you know, her entire demeanor says, I am spent. And watching that, it really speaks to, like, as I said, I didn't have as viscerally angry reactions or negative reactions to Tim and, like, the sort of structure there. But then when you see that kind of thing at the end, you really do get that sense of, like, oh, geez, like, this was ultimately, like, a kind of, there's a dysfunction here. That's yeah. not just within this organization. It is within this organization. It's within capitalism. It's within everything. But yeah, like yeah, yeah. really just to see how much, how she was like, the life was just sucked out of her yeah. over the course of this game. And that's maybe the biggest, I guess, disappointment. Cause right. You always, you hear like, don't meet your heroes. Right. And I knew there was going to be some like negative or even just some like breaking of the myth of Tim Schafer and watching this like 12 hour documentary uh, but even if it's just like watching him like eat a bagel or whatever, it's like, oh, that's not as funny as I was hoping it would be. You know, so it's also to build, it's a film, right? So it's also to build conflict. So who knows how much of this is taken, not, not out of context, but is elevated yeah, at least. Totally. But I, th I think maybe the biggest disappointment in all of this in, in my image of Double Fine is, is the steps that at least it appears in the documentary that doesn't seem to be any ability or desire to mitigate any of those potential negative pressures or forces or consequences of the crunches mm, of true. the weird power dynamics of the weird, like lack of PR. Was there a PR person at the company? I don't well, even know. He was the PR person was, um, it's that tall blonde guy and he like works on the, he's, what's his name? Greg Rice. Yeah, no, that's the, the guy. Beard? That's the, that's the one. Yeah. He's a VP of business and, so and, and producer. He says in it, uh, in one of the episodes, he's like, so I'm in charge of, like, the PR for this game. And he's the one doing it. So he's, like, doing all this other stuff. And then he's also... Hey, hey oh, Ben, quick question. Yeah. What did Chris Remo do on this game? <laughs> he was community management? Yep. He was not on this team. He wasn't on the Double Fine team. Yeah, or he, yeah he was not on the uh, Double Fine Adventure team. He was not on the Broken Age team. He was on the Double Fine team as community manager. Got it, yeah, and he handled a lot of the like uh, the Kickstarter stuff. Right. So he worked with Broken right. Age occasionally just to handle some of like the Kickstarter right. movies. And that's, that's what I say to just say, like, what did Chris Remo do on this project? Oh, he wasn't on this project. Right. Oh, what? Like, he, he just got <laughs> shit on by Tim publicly. Yeah, when Corey's saying that Greg Rice did promotion and marketing. Oh, right, it's right, like, right. Yeah, probably. That that I don't remember that being said, but that adds up. And yeah. again, like we're not seeing most of what actually happens at the company. But right. yeah. 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 I just remember being startled by it that he was it was like they were doing something and there was a point where he was like stressed out about because he was like, I'm in charge of like the marketing or whatever for this. 
And so I have to, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, what? But that's not his job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, at one point I slacked to you both. Summary of the documentary. Greg says, we have enough time and money to do three things. Tim says, let's instead do 10 really slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just Tim and Greg fighting about timelines. To add to that and then to bring it back to Anna, there's a moment uh, in which... Tim gets this idea that he should have had Bagel, who is the uh, the artist. We haven't even this. talked about Bagel yet. Bagel. I, we'll get back I to that. I do want to talk oh, about yeah. So God. he gets this idea that they should have had Bagel do the concept art. Now, this is, you know, months after concept art has started. They have, like, a week left with Peter Chan's time as concept artist. Long time, like, historical figure in gaming art, Peter Chan. And, and Peter, he's not real happy with Peter's work, from what I can tell. He's got a lot of, you know, minor critiques. And the minor critiques seem to be, it's not Bagel. Right. And in right. my mind, I saw Bagel. Right. Um, he also probably charges and, two or three times more than Bagel. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and so people are, like, pushing back, and he's just kind of, like, shits on them. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, yeah, but that's not what I want. I guess it's just not what I saw. Anyway, I need to go check out an inventory. And he just walks out of the room and goes, hey, Anna, uh, let me see that inventory system. It's like mid-conversation. Cool. Tough decisions need to be made. Yeah. I'll say something shitty and then uh, maybe go flirt with an employee. Right. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I felt strongly, you know, Anna was, for me, the protagonist of the docuseries. Mm-hmm. I was worried about yeah. her. I was hopeful for her. Yeah. The, the docuseries really follows her closely. Uh, and she gets sick, you know, right before the end of it. So definitely a lot of fear. And then at, at the very end, she's somewhat ambivalent about the entire project right. of, I think we made something good. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was all worth it. I'm not sure what right. I should have done. That kind of stuff. Uh, so I wanted to give you an update on Anna's life. Anna left and uh, is now with Google Stadia. Uh, so Stadia, it's uh, Google's uh, streamable video game platform. Oh, so okay. You, you buy video games and you play them on your Chromecast. Yeah, okay. And so, so far, there have been, there's no announcement about any actual um, game development from Stadia, right? So far, they're just, you can play Red Dead Redemption 2 on Stadia, right? Mm-hmm. Or, I'm assuming, you know, something like that. But they're not making their own games. And yet, we know they've hired a bunch of game devs. And we know these little projects coming out. And one of the big features is her project. Yeah. This AI fox she made with semantic machine learning. And she has a beautiful presentation on it. Yeah. And the uh, original write-up that I saw on it from 9to5google.com says, uh, Google senior prototyper and game designer Anna Kipnis of Stadia's research and development-focused StarLab will present a session titled Creating Game AI by Using Mostly English with Semantic Machine Learning at the Game Developers Conference in March. Hey, bad news, everybody. Uh, wah, wah. Uh, GDC did not happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's wise. And that's good that it didn't. By the way, you can read her entire talk. She did post it last week. Oh. Um, it's it's really, really good. And looks really cool. And I want to spend some time diving into it. Uh, but she's tweeted it. You can check it out. And so it seems like not only is she landed on her feet, but she's doing really well and doing great work. And that was a nice little coda for me on the entire docuseries. For sure. Nice. Let's talk bagel. bagel. I don't. I don't understand why you guys hate bagel so much. Oh, uh, maybe we shouldn't talk about bagel. No, I want to talk about it because you guys like ranted so much about bagel, and then maybe it was my expectation or whatever. But I watched and I was like, he's. I mean, it's just like an artist. We dislike him for different reasons. 
Uh, I will say that one of my slacks about him was Bagel is just every art major I knew in college. I mean, that's fair. So we, I don't think we disagree about that, Corey, but I think <laughs> yeah. we just disagree about our feelings it's towards just, art yeah, majors. It's the antipathy. Okay. So Peter Chan is an artist. Mm-hmm. For sure. Peter Chan told a beautiful story. Oh my gosh. About him throwing away drafts that he had drawn. Oh. And his dad came in. Oh my God. That's when he's a kid. This is in my cry moments list, Jason. Oh my gosh, this was mine this too. Is... Yeah. And, and his dad comes in and says, hey, you know, you can save a lot of space in the trash can if you don't crumple them up first. Oh my God. And it wasn't until after his dad's death that he found out while going through his dad's things that the reason his dad said that was so he could go in every night, take all of those thrown away drafts and put them into a folder. And save them and treasure them forever. That, That's amazing. I mean, Peter Chan is human. He is kind. He is caring. He's all those things. Yeah. Scott Campbell, Ugh. nice enough guy. He is. He he's an artist as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seemed, seemed fine. Seems great. He's the guy that's buddies with Bagel in New York. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. best buds. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Love okay, each yeah. other. That's a good Scott Campbell impression. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, we're best buds. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, we'll hit the uh, donut shop, get some coffee, and uh, go go hit up Bagel. He's right upstairs. Yeah. So. <laughs> So Scott Campbell, here's the, the main distinction between Scott Campbell and Bagel is Scott Campbell is aware that other human beings exist. Mm. And I never once noticed that from Bagel. Okay, that's fair. He was so self-absorbed. Right. So completely self-absorbed. And it, it just hurt. Every time somebody would say something to him and he would just, yeah, yeah you know. Anyway, I'm looking at this thing over here. And it was like, do you know that I'm here? I'm a person. I'm next to you. I talked. <laughs> I guess I think like I read it as well and uh, surrounded by self-absorbed artists as well. I was like, oh, I guess he like I was like, he's just like, this is not his element. That was I'm like, he knows nothing about this. Yeah. So he's just redirecting everything back towards the thing he understands, which is and what the he's people making. around him seem to love him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I he never saw general. anybody rolling their eyes at him. They yeah. all purely love him. Yeah. And that tells me that I think he's just different on camera. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Camera is weird. That's a good point as well. Awkward, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. I think it's also tough when you like go into his house and there's like nothing on the walls except for like scribbles that he's done in like number yeah. two pencil and like <laughs> wallpaper falling off and him like point pushing the screen of his computer so far in that it's like making permanent marks into his display because he's an artist and he doesn't need to know how tech works like it just yeah. seems like the most yeah everything about him was just like all of my pet peeves yep yeah so but yeah everyone seemed to like him that's true that's a good point yeah 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 so i i don't think he actually is self-absorbed i think i think Corey, you're right that yeah you know when he's on camera he just he talks about the things he knows. Right. Yeah. No, I see. Like now I'm just I wanted to understand the complaints that both of you guys had. And both of those make absolute sense. I was just like, oh, I see why I interpreted this a little bit differently. But I see exactly why you were like frustrated this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we finally met our hero, Tim Schaefer. Yeah. Um, I both love and hate Tim Schafer now. <laughs> and he reminds me of so many people that I know. Uh, one in particular. He reminds me of Ben. I'm sorry. Oh, I can see wow, that. that sucks. <laughs> he just like you make very similar jokes. And like y y there's something about his constant weight fluctuations. No, <laughs> trying to say this without sounding like I'm like trying to like head shrink you or whatever right. but there's something about the way that he reacts to things and like 
deals with stuff that very much like like the quips that he'll make in response to something that makes him uncomfortable or something like that mm. very much yeah. remind me of you. Which also, I feel like you tend to be kind of hard on yourself, so it also makes sense that you're yes. like, yes. to this guy at the same time that you're like, Why would I, like, I'm like avoiding, yeah. I, normally, <laughs> I would be like, oh my gosh, you compared me to Tim Schafer. That's amazing. <laughs> I immediately <laughs> jump to only the negatives. Yeah, no, I'm like, I feel like there was a lot of stuff that he did that I found really endearing that I yeah. was like, that reminds me of Ben. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so in a and, good way, he reminds me of you. Oh, good. Thank you, yeah. And both of them just legit geniuses i am not saying this in any jokey kind of way no like right seriously so to talk about tim schaefer the way this shows up for him he is making stupid jokes in front of a poster of a cartoon jack black uh (laughs) joking about drinking too much then drinking too much all the while idly playing with 30 increasingly complex Rubik's Cubes. Oh my cubes gosh. That he solves <laughs> so many Rubik's and reshuffles <laughs> during the course of the docuseries. Casually. Insane. Yeah. One of them has like 30 squares per face. Yeah, those are insane. It's amazing yeah. just to watch. And he's clearly doing it just to have something to do with his hands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a fidget. Yeah. To take over that load, that mental mm-hmm. load, so he can, you know, engage with other people because yeah. otherwise he would be thinking 300 other steps. Yes, 100%. Just just take up some of that space. That reminds me of Ben, yeah. who is editing this, is going to put in a little duck sounds. He's going to edit it at two or, what, three times speed, Ben? Yeah, while also doing, like, three other things at the same time. Making business know. cards, taking care of his kids. Listening to a podcast. Playing Red Dead. And so many <laughs> of these will be happening at once. Yeah. So that extreme multitasking, extreme creative genius, like, right. it locks in. Especially because neither of them are the the obvious creative genius. Right. Right. The, the art major that, that Ben talked about earlier. Yeah. I will, I will disagree with everything you said on just on principle, but also (laughs) thank you. And I, I will say just as the cherry on top of all that you said, uh, even though I'm disagreeing with it, I did manage to edit a podcast while listening to a podcast. See, this is what I'm talking about. That's obscene. That's That's what I'm talking about. I'm very proud of myself. It won't happen very often, but, Wow. wow! Which podcast were you listening to? I was listening to some random sports podcast. Okay, okay. that's which is probably why I could do it. Right? It was just like, oh, who's so and so going to take in the draft? All like random hypothetical sports things. Sports isn't even happening now, so it doesn't matter at all. All right. So, anything else? What are some other things that jumped out to us about Tim Schaefer? Uh, I think we talked about the things we didn't like, which were mainly just uh, managerial style. Yeah, and things happening right? around him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. His company overall. Yeah, I wonder if there's... You think there'd be a way for it to, like, demand... I guess it's Craig's job. <laughs> Never mind. Well, that's, like, uh. <laughs> all of this, again, every time I look at this is just coming down to the fact that, like, he really... He shouldn't be the boss in the way that he is anyway. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, everything about the office is really kind of about the organization of it. And so even insofar as I'm, like, yeah, he's not managing this in the best way that he could it's also that like that really is not the role he should be in like sure he can be like it's kind of like being the celebrity who's the executive producer on a movie right like they're not actually in there bossing everyone around right like it's just except sometimes they are well except sometimes they are that's a good point which is why vin diesel's character never loses a fight that's a very good point very good point. But like all that to say, like, it's like people have roles and like he's uh, he's the head writer on this stuff. And maybe he's like the face and all this kind of stuff. He can be CEO or whatever. 
but maybe he just shouldn't really be running all of the day-to-day operations of it. And so I don't completely hold it against him in the sense that I feel like it's just overall that he doesn't know the organizational structure and there's no one in there being like, we should rearrange this. And he's he's reflective on this somewhat towards the beginning when yeah. he says something about uh, when they're picking the team. And he's like, you know, I can't, it would be inappropriate for me to say, oh, I want these ones because they're the best. Right. You know, it's, I, I, I have no more weight at this table than any other right. project manager. Yeah. Or I should. And he jokes, he says, but I'm also the boss, so I can do whatever I want. Exactly. Right. It's like this egalitarian utopia that then goes wrong when you're like, but there is a boss. And I am that boss. Right. And I, I, what I'm seeing him doing now as I kind of reflect more on this is I think part of him even making that joke is him trying to take on the project manager role and not the boss role. Right. Right. The boss can't make that joke. Right. Project manager can. And he's trying to step into that project manager role. And it means being goofy. And he remembers being goofy when he wasn't the boss. And he's trying to relive that kind of thing. Right. And so we didn't, I don't know how much of what we saw of him was in boss mode. Yeah. And maybe we can't cut some of those out in the ways that, that we need to. And stop seeing him as, you know, a poor manager. We didn't see a lot of management. Right. Except for when he made fun of Chris Remo's height. Yeah, that was rough. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I will say, I, I, we talked about it in the, the Double Fine episode two weeks ago, how... The second half, that second act was so much harder than the first. Yeah. So much. It was nice getting a concrete answer as to why. It wasn't just like oh, yeah. weird inconsistencies in the writing. It was right. very intentional. Yeah. This made me want to go back to um, point and click adventures um, so much. For one thing, I love Broken Age so much more than I did before uh, after watching yeah, the documentary. Definitely. And for another thing, I now think that uh, Broken Age is not a point and click adventure for me. Oh, interesting. Like, I liked it, it was fun. But I didn't like the puzzles. Like they were way too hard, particularly the the wire one. Yeah, it's like I, it's just not what I'm interested in, and it makes me want to go back and play Thimbleweed Park again. But another thing it does is I kept coming back to Unavowed. Was that what it was called? I was gonna say I was exactly, exactly what I was just gonna say. Is it Unavowed or just yeah Unavowed? Unavowed. Yeah, Wajedai games. We played it last year. Yeah, yeah. I want to go play some more Wajedai games because that game was so much fun. And that that um, game played like what we remember point and clicks being yeah same difficulty it was almost like a, a walking simulator with an occasional puzzle and really funny the whole time it was just a really really good game yeah i want to go back to them and get some more wajidai games yeah on our queue definitely um yeah so so that was kind of my takeaway but let's get, let's go back to uh tim and uh puzzle design and how difficult these puzzles were yeah i thought in um it was i marked it down because i it was like one of those big light bulb moments for me which was uh, the 14th minute of the sixth episode in that series, uh, which was Tim Schafer divulges the biggest secret in my life, which is how he makes puzzles, how Tim Schafer, because we always do that, right? We joked about it over the years of figuring out in day of the tentacle of, of all the monkey Island games. Like how do we figure this out? All we do is crawl into the mind of Tim Schafer and say, what would Tim do? And that legit actually helped us solve some of the puzzles for, for Guybrush. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but basically he says he wants the response of the player to be, ah, I figured that out as soon as you figure out a puzzle, as opposed to being, ah, I'm so stupid, I never would have figured that out once they look it up or once they eventually randomize it. And he wants it to be more like a rewarding feeling rather than, oh, Tim Schafer's so smart or whoever wrote that is so smart. Right. Uh, which I love that, which which tells me that games should, you should lean on them being easier and more like story and character focused. And less on like, I'm going to make all these puzzles so freaking hard. They're going to have to all talk to each other and blog about each other and look up whatever IGN walkthrough it is. 
which seemed like a lot of the second act was. But Tim Schafer at heart is more like act one. Right. Where it's just kind of like a clever story with characters you like. And if you click on, not click on stuff randomly, but like if you walk around enough and collect enough things, you'll eventually put together some logic as to what to do next to figure out the puzzles. And you'll have a lot more of those, aha, I figured it out, I'm so smart moments as opposed to act two, which was a lot more like, let's make it as hard as we can because people complained it was too easy. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, when he's talking about the creative process, uh, he talks about it uh, pretty early on, actually, in episode two. And he was talking about like as, as a doing Kickstarter instead of publishers, right? Yeah. If you could self-publish it, this is what real art would look like. Yep. And, and so he's like, you know, as as an actual creative, you know, doing this work, what it feels like is drops of paint just kind of falling from the sky, and you've got your your parchment. You're just kind of moving around with it. And you're going like, oh, okay, I like I like this paint over here. Oh, this is kind of nice. And you kind of move it around. You kind of, and we've got a publisher who wants to get involved. It's like it needs more red, Put more red in it. <laughs> right. Right. What is this? Is this a horse? There should be more horses. <laughs> and I and I want fewer crocodiles. Kids love horses. Uh, and it, it's like, but man, that's not how it works. I can't I can't work like that. The drop the paint is just dropping. Yeah. No, I, I just gotta catch it. Go where it's going. Yeah. And so I, I love that. I to me it it reminds me of how, you know, I teach writing and how uh, creativity works. The French philosopher Gilles Deleuze actually talks about this, the plane of imminence, which is his idea of how concepts work, how concepts are created. He says, it's like a section of chaos that acts like a sieve on which little moments of chaos fall. It's good. Mm. Yeah. And it's it, it's like literally the exact same image yeah. that I'm assuming Tim Schafer wasn't reading to lose. Yeah, Maybe probably was. not. I don't know. Who knows? But like, I just love these two people came across like a really similar image for how thought works in this fundamental way. But it was so beautiful. I like that. Yeah. I mean, he had a couple moments. I think when he talks about creativity he often articulates it in a way that is very poetic and beautiful and makes you sit and think about, you know, that process. And yeah. I thought that was kind of like for someone who the vast majority of the time when you're seeing him on screen, you're seeing him like joking around and kind of in the spot of, of course, he's uncomfortable with the camera on him and all this stuff. And he's in this weird spot uh, and he's a quirky, jokey kind of guy. That's how he goes through life. But then when he, is asked to articulate something, you really get this moment of seeing that brilliance inside that you were talking about. That can be very, like, just sort of subtle. You, like you said, he's not the obvious. He's not an artist who goes out there and he's like, here is my work of art that is clearly genius. But then the moment that you really get a second to sit inside his brain and think about what's going on in there, you're like, wow, that's pretty. It's pretty in there. <laughs> we never really got much feedback and maybe that's just not how the company works but as when we never got tim presenting here's my idea for this scene right. and people criticizing it or saying like what about this or doing any sort of feedback writing group type session with any of his right did, did that exist at all it feels very one-sided like they just he goes away to his room and he writes a thing and then that is what it is it is what it is yeah <laughs> that's it i'd be interested to know if it works for other project managers that same way Right. Um, you know, maybe that's the way they do it at Double Fine. Whoever the project manager manager is, kind of, they've got the vision for the game. Yeah, you, you let them go. You might give them ideas. You might push back here and there. I think this might need to be, you know, bigger. This might need to be smaller stuff like that. But you do not, you do not get to change the plot of the game. Right. That's the project manager's role. But even like lines of dialogue, it was there wasn't really. Yeah, like, yeah. Does, someone no being like, "This of, would be funnier." Right. It's just him. But there is a level of pushback there. The level of pushback that exists, I think, is not on his team, unfortunately, because I think he'd be better for it. It's his memories of all the other games. And yeah. one of the biggest one is Grim Fandango, yeah. which widely viewed as one of the best video games ever made. And 
he talks about it as a successful failure. Mm -hmm. It is the game that killed adventure games. Yeah, The game that killed point-and-click adventure. (laughs) It's the reason they went to Kickstarter to make this one. Yeah. And the re- because they couldn't get anything else funded right. because it was such a good game that didn't sell well. Yeah. yeah. Right. If it had been a worse game, adventure games might still be around right? as a viable <laughs> right. genre. Because uh, people would say like, oh, it's a pretty good game and it sold pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. You can't take this to a publisher and be like, I'll make a great one because you already yeah. made the yeah, perfect one. Yeah. And they're like, and cool. Tanked. Nobody buys it. Yeah. Right. No, so. Nobody buys perfection. So why do you keep working? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he clearly lives under that. And I think that it's it's to detriment. And the reason that I actually prefer Thimbleweed Park to Broken Age, you know, pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is trying to figure out, okay, what? How do I make adventure games work for the people who are buying adventure games now? Right. You know, how do I uh, do it in this kind of new moment? How do I reinvent adventure games? Whereas the uh, Thimbleweed Park, I think, really was a throwback. It was trying to live in that late '80s, early '90s world. To the extent that, um, you know, they mentioned in this uh, adventure, they're like, nobody wants to go uh, pixel hunting, which is when on these old games where you'd move around trying to find the one pixel that was a little bit different than everything else, <laughs> you had to click on it to get whatever it was. The Maniac Mansion basement is the one I always think yep. of that. Clicking on bricks is the name of the episode. That's right. <laughs> Clicking on bricks. Literally just, yeah, there's one random brick and it doesn't look different, but you have to click on a specific brick to let yourself out of the basement. And what Thimbleweed Park did with that is... In every room that you walk through, every space, there is one pixel that is discolored, just a white pixel in it on the blue background. And if you click on it, it adds it to your inventory. Yeah. And you get one pixel. Mm. You know, it just names it a pixel. And if you click another one, now it says two pixels are in your inventory. And there's an achievement yes. for hunting down all of the pixels. Pixel hunter. They turned <laughs> pixel hunting into its own metagame. It's like what what did what Ben did in um, the Stanley Parable? What was it that you yes open the most doors or oh, whatever? Yeah, clicked the, on the most handles or whatever. Click yeah, the yeah. most door handles. <laughs> yep. There's one That's thing right. we can count on Ben for. That's right. Yep, collecting all the pixels. <laughs> yep. And so Double Fine uh, decided to identify and eliminate mistakes like pixel hunting. Thimbleweed Park took whatever was bad about the old games and turn it into something fun yeah. and good. Mm. And that is such a rare thing to do, such a difficult thing to do. Uh, but I, I, it's one of the reasons I love Thimbleweed so much. Yeah. I have an idea. Mm. And we, I don't know if this is going to make the podcast or not, but um, this is going to be, our, I believe, our 48th game. What's, uh, Undertale, I think, is our 48th game. And so 50th is obviously two months away. I was thinking we got to do something cool for it. What if we did Thimbleweed Park? Because when we played it, it was... The, I think pre-release and so yeah or right when it came out or whatever it was we got uh, it pre-release pre-release by a couple of weeks and so it, while we were doing it while we were interviewing David Fox about it I feel like every five minutes in his interview he's like and we fixed that and then we fixed that and it was like a different <laughs> game already a month after we played it yep and there were so many releases and Sean was texting me about stuff months later and I was like I don't even remember that so I think that'd be a good one because it's a totally different game now and also because in so many ways, like you just outlined, it's like the culmination and amalgamation of all of our favorite parts of all these games and why we do this podcast in the first place. And it's Ron and Dave and Gary. Yeah. And I yeah. own it already. Have you played it, Corey? Yes. Oh, awesome. Okay, nice. cool. Yeah. Well, at least a good chunk of Sweet. it anyway. You know how I never finish. <laughs> I, never, I never finish anything. I never finish a whole TV series. <laughs> I never oh, finish man. a game, but I've played a good chunk of it. All right. So Thimbleweed's going to be my, my preferred, but both are really cool games. I'm just so glad that we got to experience 
Broken Age because now I really, really like Broken Age, even if it wasn't the game for me. Now, Core, you had one other thing you wanted to add about Tim. This is one of the famous uh, cry moments. Uh, so we're going to go to Corey's Cry Corner. Ben, do you have the, uh, the musical uh, bump there for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just press that button. Beep. <laughs> oh, my God. Corey's Cry Corner. This definitely be a thing. That's my life. Corey's Cry Corner. So, um, Tim Schaefer, there's a moment in this where they're deciding what Vela is going to wear. And they have a few options of the possibilities of the kind of outfits that she could potentially wear. And so his solution is to ask his daughter, who is what? Like, how old do you think she is as actual parents? Like, four-ish? That was going to be my essential guess. So he takes it to her and asks her which of these dresses... Or which of the outfits? I don't know that they're all dresses that she could possibly wear, but which one Bella should wear? And she like decisively picks the one, uh, and he asks her why, and she's like, "Because it's so beautiful." And then she does this cute little like Shirley Temple shimmy, and like you can just see his heart break into a million pieces of love of just like this. Yes, whatever you say, darling. This is what's going into the game. And that that that's how we get the outfit that she wears. Because it's also when you look at the outfit, too, you're like, that is 100 percent the outfit a four year old would pick. Yeah. You know, it's it's got this nice little flair to it. But it's like, you know, everything about it is just very much like, what would a little kid pick for this girl to wear? And it makes so much sense. And it's just such a sweet thing for him to even have thought of. Like, for sure. If anyone's going to choose this, it's going to be my daughter. She gets to pick what this female hero looks like. And I just love that. That was my, like, I seriously was just like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so happy. So, yeah. And he just, he just looks at her when yeah. she picks. Like, right? Just yeah. I made a genius. watches. Yeah. <laughs> like, genius genius. like, look what, oh. uh, look what I made. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just a delight. That's great. This has been Corey's Cry Corner. Nice. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we've got. Um, we learned a lot of lessons. Uh, we made some new friends, uh, some new enemies. Uh, mm. Bagel, I'm coming for you. Um, he's so hot, and, though. Uh, hex- <laughs> he's so hot right now. We, we made a few hexy pals. Oh. And uh, just wanted to thank you all for uh, joining us on this journey. And... Uh, Get psyched. Start listening to the Thimbleweed Park podcast. All 98 episodes or however many there are. Because uh, we're going to announce now that our special 50th game. Hello. 50th game. Will be. The July episode. Thimbleweed Park. So you got a couple months. uh, Get back to playing it. If you played it when we originally uh, played it a few years ago when it came out. Uh, It's changed a lot. It's gotten updates. Uh, Buy it for a different system. See how it plays on Switch. Uh, do it. I might have to listen to our episode to beat some puzzles. I think I might do that in preparation. Oh, yeah. That's a good Because I don't think that counts as cheating. <laughs> I'm just going to Google like usual. It doesn't count as cheating if I'm going off my past advice, though. That seems fair. I think it'll be okay. <laughs> it's not cheating if you do it with yourself. Exactly. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Let's end this thing. And that's our show. Uh, once again, I have been Jason. <laughs> Ben is showing us Legos and Corey is collapsing in a fit of laughter. And until next time, we remain 
Men. Men of low moral fiber. I didn't know we were both going to do that. Yeah, I do my own reverb. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry.